Hey Pacer fans, I'm Miles Turner, and here's a Sideline Guys podcast. Welcome Pacers fans into another Sideline Guys Wednesday. As always, I'm joined by Jeremiah Johnson. My name is Pat Boylan, and we hope you enjoyed the episode last week with Eddie Gill and a little tea. These are looking forward. We hope to have Doug McDermott joining the podcast next week. Not exactly sure when we're going to be able to take this. So if you don't see an episode out on Wednesday, February 17th, just understand we hope to have a good one coming your direction, but it might be perhaps Thursday or even Friday before um, we can get that sideline guys with Doug out next week. The Pacers... Uh, J.J. are in probably their most turbulent waters of the season, although uh, important to note, Indiana had not lost three straight games until Sunday's loss to Utah. We came to uh, everyone on a Thursday last week, which meant it was right after that Milwaukee game. The Pacers had an odd couple of games where they blew out the Grizzlies, then got uh, beat pretty badly by the Bucks in Milwaukee. Uh, Friday, a loss to New Orleans where the Pacers come storming back from a big deficit. And get a decent look to win it with Miles Turner. It just didn't fall. Um, and then Utah, a game that was fairly close most of the way. And Indiana was there in the fourth quarter, not able uh, to pull it out. You know, you look at this past three games or so, um, and, and I think you look at them individually and you say, you lose at Milwaukee, that's not a problem. Uh, New Orleans has now won three in a row. You caught the Pelicans coming off of what Stan Van Gundy said was their best game of the season. And it looks like they're starting to play well. Um, and Utah is, is the best team in the NBA by record. So you look at all these individually and you say, well, losing any of those isn't problematic. You know, you're going to have uh, games where you don't play your best, especially on a back to back in Milwaukee. But certainly I think you wanted to avoid losing all three of them, I think, especially with a couple at home. Um, you'd like to at least split that group. And I guess one um, kind of interesting trend, and I'm not sure if it has anything to do with we've only played, I think, 15 or so home games. Obviously, home games are different and the home court advantage is way down. But one thing the Pacers have been able to just really rely on uh, the last five, six, seven years, maybe save the final year um, uh, of the Paul George era is a really, really good home court record. Um, and, and maybe this speaks to how much that we miss the fans. We're fortunate <laughs> to get 1,500 or so in there. But so far, that major home court advantage hasn't played to fruition this year. Yeah, when it was such a difficult week, and I'm going to talk about the week as being that Sunday against Philadelphia going up until the Sunday against Utah, but four of the five are at home. You can kind of still think, all right, well, you know, at minimum, you're you're going to go two and three that week. And and so I think one and four is frustrating for everyone involved, for the, for the fans and for the players and for the coaching staff. But now to really take a step back and realize you don't have that little home court boost. And even if it's three or four points in a game like the Pelicans game, three or four points is probably a win. And, um, you know, even I want to take a step even wider than the five games. I think that the NBA right now has a lot of parity, but we might have a little bit of a tier separation in that there might be six teams that have, that look like they maybe are clearly ahead of the middle tier and then another tier after that. And, and those six, I think if I might, I would put Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Milwaukee in the East, Clippers, Lakers, Jazz in the West. And so if you're going to take this next game into account also, of those six, you're playing four in a stretch of six days. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't win some of those games, but the Pacers right now, their margin for error is just not 
um, what it what it will be when they are fully healthy, even when they have one of T.J. Warren or Karis LeVert. Think about not to make excuses, and this isn't like any kind of earth-shattering news, but when you trade Victor Oladipo and you don't get anything on the court for a while, you're just not going to be as good of a basketball team. You're not going to have that explosiveness. You're not going to be as good perimeter defense. Uh, there are just a lot of things that you're going to give up, and you're not replacing them. And so I think there are a lot of factors involved to where they're at right now, but even uh, the biggest picture takeaway you can have is 24 games in, you're 12 and 12. You've had some good moments. You've had some some rough patches, and you're a third of the way through the season. So you have a big sample size, but I guess the positive is two-thirds still yet to go, and there is a light, hopefully, at the end of the tunnel in terms of the injury situation. Yeah, I think so, too. And, and when you look at the Pacers the last couple of years, think about timing. Um, in terms of playing their best when they want to, timing hasn't always been on their side. A lot of that was due to injuries. Uh, you know, the Victor Oladipo injury, not having DeMontis Sabonis in the bubble. The Pacers haven't really been playing their best brand of basketball heading into the playoffs, probably since that 17-18 team, which took Cleveland to seven games. And I think, you know, after watching the last few years, I just think that's so important. And it's far from a guarantee that the Pacers will be um, at the end of the year. But I will say that I'm more than willing, um, you know, to sacrifice some early midseason ups and downs um, I still think, you know, TJ McConnell made the comment that he doesn't feel like the new defensive system, um, that there's still any learning curves with it. But I still think um, it's reasonable to expect some. You're playing fairly different on the defensive end, and this group has played well defensively, um, you know, literally this entire group last year. But even most of these guys over the last few years have played well defensively, and I think there's there's hope for them being a good defensive team still. That hasn't played out through the first third of the season. But I think if there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful that when you get Levert and you get Warren hopefully back, um, that you can be hitting your stride when you need to. Um, and as we talked about on previous podcasts, so then can you do a little bit more than tread water during this point in the year? Well, right now, 12 and 12 means you are exactly at treading water. So I think it's reasonable to hope for this next I don't know, stretch of games, probably until you hit the all-star break. You're talking now a little less than a month's time. Um, you know, what can you do with from February 10th to March 4th? Do you find yourself at the all-star break playing well? Do you find yourself a few games over 500? And at that point, do we then hopefully have some news on Levert um, and, and Warren, which makes you optimistic for those guys' return? Those are up in the air. We don't know. One thing you hit on a moment ago that I want to go back to, which I think is so important, when you don't have Levert and you don't have Warren, your margin for error is significantly less. DeMontis Sabonis and Malcolm Brogdon have been two of the most consistent guys in the NBA this year, and it's just not reasonable to expect them to look like an all-star every single game, despite the fact that they've almost given you that. But what I think you've seen a little bit in this last week is what is going to naturally happen over the course of the season, even for all-star caliber players, you're going to have some off nights. And unfortunately for Indiana, um, these two have come, um, you know, kind of at the same time, they've coincided. So Sabonis had a good game against Milwaukee, but if you look at his last two games, um, he's shooting 31% from the field, um, eight rebounds and four assists and 14 points. So, Again, just two games, but those are all well below his typical numbers. And a guy that was getting a double-double almost every single night 
um, now has gone the first game without double doubles in back to back games. And I, I think it's been about 90 for him. Um, and that's coincided with a little bit of an off stretch for Malcolm Brogdon. So you look at Brogdon's last three. 13 points per game, 35% shooting, 17% from three. Um, even the foul line, he's, he's missed a few. So those are going to happen. And unfortunately for Indiana, they've happened um, simultaneous with each other. They've happened at the same time. And I think over the course of the season, you're going to find these examples few and far between. But it's unreasonable, even though for the most part, Sabonis and Brogdon had very, very few off games. And we remember the one really big off game that um, Malcolm had. He followed it up with a huge night against Toronto. But this is the reality of the NBA. And, and even the very best players go through this. And so when you don't have Levert and you don't have Warren, and then there's a lot more pressure on Brogdon and Sabonis to be at the top of their games every night. And for a lot of the year, they have. But now we're seeing an example of where they each have, you know, a little blip on the radar and then you consider you don't have Levert, you don't have Warren. There's 40 points per game or so on their scoring averages. And Sabonis and Brogdon aren't quite playing at their level. Well, then that's you know a challenging aspect to overcome. And that's what you're missing right now, I think, in terms of what you were talking about, your margin of error. Uh, Sabonis and Brogdon can have off nights, I think, when Levert and Warren are there. And you can be just fine. It's going to be challenging to do it in the near term, though. And the other thing that I think that I'd like to look at, and I think sometimes maybe some can listen to this and say, oh, you know, they're just making excuses. They always see the glass half full. But let's take that five-game stretch and let's really see who you were playing against. First, you were playing against a Philadelphia team that's led by Dan Burke defensively. So is there anybody in the NBA that knows those Pacers players better than Dan Burke? And if he has to give some advice or some tips, and I'll, I'll even throw Popeye Jones into that, because he's, you know, been with DeMontis Sabonis and Miles Turner for the last three-plus years. So if, if, even if Embiid's not playing, is there anybody that really knows the strengths and weaknesses of this team and maybe the way to kind of control or slow down Sabonis and what Malcolm Brogdon likes to do? It's, it's those two. Then the Memphis game, obviously, great Pacers win. Milwaukee, one of the best, longest defensive teams in the last few years. I think their defense has taken a step back this year but maybe that's just maybe they're choosing a little bit of a different plan to be better in the playoffs and not as you know not show everything in the regular season and then you've got the pelicans who um is as big as any team that that you'll see when you've got adams and zion williamson and then you go and you take on the jazz who are playing you know the best all-around basketball only team top five in offense and defense and that that just has the makings of a tough week I'm excited about this Nets game because I think the Pacers offense is so much better. And this is even not at full strength. The Nets don't want to play any defense. So as much as I did kind of enjoy the the kind of the grit and grind and kind of a slugfest a little bit against the Jazz. I think this has the makings for a, a 130, 125 kind of game on Wednesday. And and I kind of actually am looking forward to that. I, I am, is that uh, crazy to think that? No, I don't think so at all. And I think to your point on the schedule, look, you've got, I think what's going to, you're going to look back is maybe the toughest or one of the toughest weeks of the year. Now, you know, it's unreasonable to expect you probably to go four and one or whatever in it. But I do think, you know, if you're the Pacers, you, you would have liked to see them grab more than one over that, you know, time period that you're talking about. But still, 
I think how we open the podcast, every single game, you, if you look at it just in the frame of playing at Milwaukee, if you look at it just the frame of taking on the now 19-5 and five Jazz, falling in those games aren't bad. The Sixers game, um, you know, really disappointing fourth quarter, but the Pacers were also up by 20 points, too, against Philadelphia, and all the others have been close. So um, I, I think kind of to, to wrap up this thought, and, and we can start looking ahead a little bit here, too, um, you know, from an individual perspective, I don't think there's massive signs of concern. Now, the key, Mark Boyle mentioned this, and I think he put it pretty well in our broadcast leading into it. I asked him the Pacers had lost four or five, which is now five of six. And I said, is that, do you consider that concerning? And he said, no, um, you're going to have your ups, you're going to have your downs, you're not healthy. He said, however, it's concerning in the fact that um, it, you can't let it be the foundation of a big stretch of the schedule where you struggle. You can't let four out of five turn into uh, losing 10 out of 12, for example. And I think I, I agree with that. You're going to have stretches. The Pacers, Last year, the Pacers lost six straight games at one point leading up to the All-Star break. And that team was on pace to win 50 games in the regular season despite losing six in a row. So it's going to happen. The biggest key is, can you keep this stretch more of a blip on the radar, or do you allow it to turn into um, a time where you're digging yourself a hole um, that you're going to be regretting that you have to try to dig out of at the end of the year? Right now, that hole's not very deep, but it is a little bit of a hole, and so I think it's a it's a little bit of a red flag, and you just say, okay, um, you know, how can you get out of this right now before it becomes too problematic? Right now, not very problematic. We'll see in a week from now um, you know, if that has played to fruition or not. And when you look at Brooklyn, the Pacers, I think, are going to catch a little bit of a break, probably bigger than a little bit of a break with Kevin Durant not playing. But uh, this is a team we talked about it a little bit when that trade went down that brought Karis Levert here. You still got Kyrie Irving. You still got James Harden. Um, those are two of the most talented guards in the NBA. And so it's going to be, I think, a decent chance it's going to be a shootout, even without Durant. But you're right. Brooklyn has struggled to play defense. And the Pacers offensively uh, this month, and it goes back to your point about the teams that they have played. Milwaukee really good defensively. Philadelphia is good defensively. Utah is really good defensively. So I don't think this is a problem. But the Pacers in the month of February, their offense is around 20th. And this is an offense that's been top 10 in the NBA for most of the year. Um, I tend to think that's, well, you've played three of maybe the top defensive teams in the NBA. Oh, and Memphis, too, was one of the top defensive teams in the NBA, and you had a big game against them, but still a very tough stretch of schedule from a defensive perspective. Um, so I tend to think that's more a byproduct of the schedule than anything, and we'll see. Maybe a good opportunity, even though that Brooklyn game I think is going to be very tough, maybe a good opportunity to kind of get out of what's been a little bit of a slump offensively. I think your outlook is completely different, or maybe your analysis with with just one more win. I mean, twelve and twelve right. doesn't look good, but if you were thirteen and eleven, and and you either got the Pelicans game or the Sixers game, which you know both were basically there for the taking, uh, then you're maybe not hitting that panic button. But now maybe people are starting to look around for it and and ask where where's that button? Are are we needing to hit this? And so I think that's kind of where it is right now, and even a a wide-ranging look at the standings shows just so much parity. I don't even know if that's the right word, but I think the Pacers right now are maybe two games out of third and, and two and a half up on 10th. So every game is important, and if they were 13-11, it would feel 
so much different and so much better. Uh, looking forward, one thing that I'm interested to watch, and it's kind of related to this Malcolm Brogdon, DeMontis Savonis angle, there, there is something that I think some teams have found in the last week or so that will be replicated just in terms of the way they're playing both of those guys. I mean, Sabonis, uh, we've seen different ways to play him, and Milwaukee decided back off completely, let him try to go to the basket, and as long as he doesn't get within four feet, you're okay. And then if you've got the length, let him get inside and, and make him try to shoot over you, and he's just not been as accurate. Uh, around the rim is maybe we've expected. So I'm just interested to see how teams will choose to play him moving forward, how he can adjust a little bit. And then I think that'll be something interesting to watch with the coaching staff as well, because whatever has worked defensively against those guys will be, it'll be, uh, it's a copycat league. And so the film's out there and it's going to be time for some of these other guys to have consistent offensive games. If, if those two are going to be either taken away or played in a way that, that they're not as successful. A guy that has come back and helps this margin of error that we're talking about a little bit is Jeremy Lamb. And I wanted to pose a question to you because Slick actually brought it up on his own. Uh, for those who haven't had the chance to listen, we don't have Slick throughout the game like we typically do, but he joins us pregame, halftime, and postgame every single game on the radio. And he said uh, that if he were coaching the team, he would strongly consider putting Lamb with the second unit, not because he's not one of the top five players, uh, but because he feels like that first group is good enough as it is, even without Levert and Warren, um, that they really miss having that boost off the bench that Lamb can bring, that he felt like um, his time might be a little bit better um, allocated there. And, and we know what ends up happening is as the game goes on, you see different uh, lineups and different rotations in there. And, and ultimately, who starts, I don't think, is quite as important um, as sometimes it's made out to be. So just a quick look at the numbers. They at least back slick from this point. First of all, uh, I will say Lamb has played overall extremely well. And he's played well as a starter. And he played well coming off the bench. Um, at, in his games as a starter... Uh, Lamb is averaging 11 points per game, shooting 48% from the field, 56% from three. Th those are very good numbers. Um, he's taking, in that time, about seven field goal attempts per game, though. And those first four where he was coming off the bench, uh, he was taking, let's see here, he was taking 11 shots a game. So he's taking about four shots fewer per game with the starting lineup. He's been effective in terms of his percentages. Um, there are other reasons why you start or don't start a guy than specifically what I'm asking, but do you think it's something that's worth considering? One of the things we heard from Nate Bjorkren at the beginning of the season is that he would have different starting lineups. He would go to different second man, second unit combinations and game to game. It would fluctuate a little bit. Now, I think it's been pretty clear to see maybe four of the five starters are, are pretty well set. Especially if you have, you know, a fully healthy team, you might even have all five. But I do think your point is a valid one that I would like to see Jeremy Lamb, when he's out on the court, have that aggressive mindset more than he's able to do with the starters. The only counter that I would have to that is I think the last two games we've seen kind of different Jeremy Lambs in the first half compared to the second half. I think he was the only pacer in double figures, if I'm correct, against the Pelicans at halftime. And he also was in double figures at halftime of the Utah game. But then I don't remember hardly anything out of him in the second half. And so 
I'm not sure necessarily if if you put him in that second unit, can that kind of, hey, you're out there with with different guys and you're needing to be the go-to scorer. One, one thing that I don't want to take away is the movement and what Doug McDermott does if Jeremy Lamb's on the court at the same time because he's been so active, not just from scoring, but just the way he kind of, you know, gets to the basket and and is constantly moving. I'm not sure that that works with the starting group. So I guess maybe my question back to you would be, if you put Jeremy Lamb in the second unit, who's your natural person to go in his place? Yeah, and that's a tough question to answer. I think maybe Doug McDermott, but but then you you run into the same kind of issue. Uh, Doug plays so well with that second unit, especially when they can get Sabonis there, that you don't want to take anything away from Doug. So there's no immediate obvious answer there. Um, you know, they've tried Aaron Holiday with the starting lineup before. It's been a tough year, frankly, for um, Holiday. And I don't think so far for him coming off the bench or starting has made a ton of difference. Um, and I'm not even saying I think they should do it. I just think it's an interesting thought because um, Lamb is taking, you know, about four more shots per game with that second group. It allows him to be more aggressive. And I think, you know, one of the storylines we're going to hit, hopefully, I hope, Hope, hope we have this storyline come up. It's one of those like really good problems to have kind of storylines. And we talked about it just a little bit at the beginning of the season. And then like our two games of having nice things where everybody was healthy, unfortunately, went out the window. Um, But what I'm talking about here is when you've got five really good players with the starting lineup, is it possible to engage all five in the same game and for all of them to have big nights? And I think that's going to be challenging and it's a good problem to have. Um, And, you know, if you get all five of those guys back, Maybe there just has to be some understanding that on any given night, you know, Miles Turner, it might not be your night to get a bunch of shots. Karis LeVert might not be yours. Warren, it might not be yours. Um, But I think there is a question, even with how they're set up now, of does the fourth, fifth guy with the starting lineup with how much you have Malcolm on the ball, how much Sabonis touches the ball. And that's another dynamic. Sabonis is such a good ball handler and such a good passer that because of that, it means he touches the ball more than, again, save these elite bigs we're talking about here, especially Jokic, but more than the average big would touch the ball. So because of that, it means a little less time for the guards in the wings, which, um, again, good problem to have. You've got the second best passing big, in my opinion, in the NBA. And most years, uh, you know, in, in most generations where you don't have Jokic, he's probably the best. But it means a little less time on the ball for everybody else. So there's adjustments that have to be made there. And I do wonder, um, and I'm sure it's something that Nate Bjorkren has considered. I think he's even said he's considered it. Um, But if, if you just say, Hey, Jeremy lamb, let loose with the second unit. And if that's not a better thing for Indiana than him having to play, um, you know, quite as much with Brogdon and with Sabonis um, and with Turner. So I don't know. I just, I I thought it was an interesting point. Um, You know, slick usually, um, is somebody that very much understands the challenges of the coaches in the modern day. And, and the game is definitely different. And by no means was he criticizing Nate Bjorkman. He just said, hey, this is something that I'd consider. And, um, y- you know, I, I think it's an interesting point, if nonetheless. And we will see. You're right. So far, we haven't seen a ton of lineup variety with Nate Bjorkman. But we still don't really, at least I don't feel like we really know um, exactly all of the coaching styles that he has. Like when the Pacers were making that big comeback against the Pelicans, I wasn't sure if he was going to let that second unit ride the rest of the way. Whereas I think previous coaches 
you know, you kind of have an ideal how they're going idea how they're going to handle things. In his case, we there are still a lot of scenarios we don't know. So maybe it's something he looks at, and every guy's got to you know view it differently. Is is Lamb somebody that feels more comfortable with the starting unit um, while the Pacers are a little banged up? It's the role he had when Victor Oladipo wasn't there. So that also might be a yes. A lot of variables into it. I just thought it was a, an interesting point. It is an interesting point, and I, I almost think that. Uh, New Orleans game is one we could have done a whole podcast immediately after because there were so many angles and nuances as to what happened. I tweeted early in the fourth quarter, this is just crazy basketball because it was weird to watch. It wasn't real smooth, but then you could tell that group kind of got a little bit of momentum. And then I immediately started thinking like you, is he going to put those guys back into the game? And he made a decision early that he was going to, he was going to ride with those five until foul trouble made him have to make one move. But um, I want to go back to you then. I'll, I would never argue with Slick. And so I think it's an interesting thought. I tend to be right now of the mindset. I, I wouldn't mind well, when they're winning one, losing one, and maybe now in a little bit of a stretch where they haven't had as much success that, that you play it by the matchups and you see who you're, who you're going against, what that starting five looks like, and what do you need. And I'll go back to you with this. The offense has been pretty effective, and I know maybe uh, this was based on a little bit of a small sample size, and then maybe it's the numbers have come down a little bit. But I do remember looking a little over a week ago when Malcolm Brogdon and T.J. McConnell shared the backcourt. It seemed like the offense was was really good, and, and T.J. McConnell helped get Malcolm Brogdon some looks a little bit easier. Now, I don't think that you could do this against the Nets if Kyrie and, and James Harden are both playing and starting. But what about, like, say, the Detroit game? What if you start McConnell and Brogdon with either Lamb? I, I'm gonna, I would say Lamb stays, and then you put Justin Holiday because I almost think, to what Slick's point is, Justin Holiday is someone who's as effective with the second unit as the yeah. first unit. And at times, you need him in the first unit for defensive purposes if you really need a good defender. But if you're not as worried about that, um, I think it'd be interesting to watch that lineup. And then what that also does is it forces Aaron Holiday to have a little more responsibility if, with the second unit and to be the primary ball handler and, and creator like we saw him have success against Golden State. You know, he's capable of doing that. Sometimes I'm not sure it's the best fit when he's on the court with McConnell because he gets, you know, standing just a little bit too much and the ball's not in his hands. So that might be a counter that I'd be interested to know what what you think and Again, I think we should probably make this point clear. We're not criticizing. We're just a couple <laughs> of guys uh, looking for podcast topics after a rough weekend. So, uh, you know, that I think that could be interesting depending upon how good the backcourt was in, in the opposing starting lineup because you would, you would have to admit that, you know, TJ McConnell is not going to be your best defender, but you're going to get the effort. And I think if he's on the court and, and he's not worried about scoring, then that kind of alleviates one of the issues I think that maybe – Slick was bringing up with with uh, Jeremy Lamb. So if you had McConnell with the others, uh, then you've you've got four guys trying to score, one guy trying to help all of them. I'll admit I hadn't thought of it as a starting unit, but I'm glad that you brought it up because I was actually looking up some of these numbers last game and haven't been able to use them yet. Um, but Brogdon and McConnell played a little bit over 100 minutes together all of last season. They've already played double that together. I haven't looked at the numbers after the game, but going into it, they had played over 200. So probably something like 220 minutes together this season. So put another way, a third the way through the season this year, 
they've played more than double the minutes together that they did all of last year. So this is clearly a Nate Nate Bjorkman spin, something he thinks he's found that he likes uh, that wasn't in play in previous years. There's obvious advantages to it. You talked about um, setting Malcolm Brogdon up a little bit more, and I think that's something that's really good to have, especially right now while you don't have um, anybody in that Oladipo spot. Like That was something that Oladipo could do um, that you maybe just don't have that weapon because right now the guy you got back that will do that when he's uh, you know fully healthy is Karis LeVert. But you don't have that right now. So wh- how can you try to find some of that? Well, T.J. McConnell is by assist rate. I haven't looked at these numbers literally this morning, but he's either first or second in the NBA to James Harden. Not to say he's the player, James Harden, of course. I'm just saying the amount of assists when they're on the floor – It's McConnell and Harden. They've been number one and number two all season long. And I really like the dynamic of of what he can do for Malcolm Brogdon because I think while you want Malcolm on the ball, while I think Malcolm's a great passer in his own right and he's pretty high up in those passing rate, uh, assist rate statistics too, I think he's such a good shooter that it's good to have a little bit of variety in there and have somebody that can set him up because – Around the NBA, and this has been you know, a tale as old as time, when you're able to catch and shoot and, and look for your shot and hunt for your shot, your percentages are always, almost always better than when you're dribbling and, and trying to shoot off the dribble and off screens and all of that. And Brogdon's such a good shooter, I think it's important to utilize that weapon. You know, One challenge of it can be um, on the defensive end. We know that McConnell just sheer size is not a terrific defender, but he makes up for it with the steals that he gets. So, yeah, I guess I would say that I would be a little surprised if we did see it in the starting lineup. Not shocked, but it would not surprise me if they continued to go to it a decent amount because they already are using it um, a decent amount. And I think I think big picture, it's an interesting wrinkle. And those two, I guess I never would have thought of that pairing before. And part of that's because we hadn't really seen it going into the year. But the more I see it, the more I think I like it. And I'm guessing uh, that Nate Bjorkman and the coaching staff would feel the same. I guess the thing that I look at this starting group right now with Lamb and Holiday is that I almost feel like they could be separated and it would benefit both of them and the team. And now one thing we've seen, though, Justin Holiday probably more than Jeremy Lamb is, is his minutes are up significantly. And whether he starts or comes off the bench, He's playing a lot. Remember, he was the one starter that was on the court with the four-man combination of second-unit players against New Orleans. And so I think his shooting, his three-point shooting, I would say I'm as confident as anybody on the team right now if he has his feet set that he's going to knock down the three. And then you add in the two-way presence, and and he's just probably, I would say, a little bit better all-around defender than Jeremy Lamb. Jeremy Lamb causes problems, gets deflections, and I think maybe helps off the ball. A little bit, but uh, I think right now Justin Holiday could be, you know, one of the most important players on the team. And so if he moved out of the starting lineup, it wouldn't be necessarily uh, to take away minutes from him. It might just be to try some different combinations and and to showcase him. So uh, there, there are a lot of options. And the other thing that we've seen in the last week, if we were doing this podcast last Thursday after the Milwaukee game, we might not have devoted any time to Gogo Bataze. But I think it's pretty safe to say that moving forward that he's probably going to go into every game being a part of the rotation. I have a hard time thinking he's not going to play. That does a couple things, though. You know, and this is, again, a first unit, second unit rotation question. But DeMontis Sabonis, for so much of the last two to three years, 
excelled going against opposing second unit centers and, and going with McDermott and McConnell in, in the second unit last season. He's not really doing that as much this season. And I think maybe that's a natural progression. You're an all-star guy. You play mostly with starters and against starters, but I don't think around the league, you often see guys play mixes and matches in rotation. So I think it's great that Goga plays, but it does look like we'll probably see a little bit less of, of Miles Turner or DeMontis Sabonis running with the second unit. Yeah, I think so too. And we saw, um, you know, Nate Bjorkren allow Goga to get a bunch of minutes the last couple of games and Turner actually played a little bit less um, because of it. So it's probably good for big picture, just keeping minutes from being, you know, too astronomically high. Uh, But also I will say this, like if you ask where I am on a one to 10 scale with analytics, I would say I'm probably like a six, but I will say, I will say this. I don't think there's any guy who you can judge on the eye test more than Goga Bataze. And I think it's important to remember, and sometimes I have to tell this myself, uh, he's really young, he's a second-year player that missed a lot of his rookie year to injury and spent a lot of his rookie year uh, in a city that he's only been in for a few months while a global pandemic hit in a country he's never lived in before. And had to get over all of that and then had to come back and play in the bubble and then had to stop again um, and then had to restart the year. And right when preseason hit dealt with another injury, he didn't get summer league. He didn't really get preseason. There wasn't much of a training camp. I mean, I know all these rookies are dealing with this, but goodness, uh, this guy's had a lot thrown at him since he's joined the NBA and at such a young age. And I think with him, you know, you could see in, in moments where he had struggled right when he had come back at times last year, like you can see the confidence, whether he's got it or not on Goga Bataze, I think more than any other player, maybe that I've ever seen um, with the Pacers. And and just from an eye test perspective, I think you have to be thrilled with what you've seen the last couple of games because he hasn't shown that look of, you know, am I in the right place? It's so hard to describe Um verbally but it's just you see it and you know it and whether he's got it or he doesn't and he's had some pretty impressive plays on the defensive end too like for him it's always going to be about his lateral quickness and his defense because he's got a pretty good shot um he's he's pretty fluid within the offense he's got to be a good enough defender um to last in the nba and to be a regular rotation member but i do think that's been one of the silver linings of the past few games of the paces have struggled is I think Bataze showing you something that he can go out there um, and, and you know, A, produce right now, but also still hopefully be a promising prospect for the next few years. And I just think it's so easy to be impatient, and especially with a guy like him and what he has gone through and dealt with with injuries and the pandemic and not being, um, you know, from the U.S. in the first place that he deserves some patience, and I think that patience is starting to pay off. We'll see here how these next couple weeks look. I think they're an important couple weeks for him because can he build on it kind of thing. Um, But at least from a last two or three games perspective, I've just seen a different air about him, a different confidence. Um, And to me, that's more important than, you know, is his shot falling or, um, you know, is is he making in the right pass. I, I think for him, it's just all about his confidence and and, and looking like he knows um, what's going on and, and that he's going to play well. And he has played well. Like you said, he was part of that group that helped spark that comeback against the Pelicans. So I've been I've been really impressed with 
what we've seen the last couple games for Bataze now, you know, the next step in his progression is stringing that together, not being uh, a guy that can play well for a few games, but being a guy that they can count on over an extended stretch here. And we know that the Pacers need it because um, they're missing two of their key guys and they probably won't have them for the near future. And to my point earlier about film and, and teams adjusting and making game plans based on what they've seen now, the last couple games with Goga playing a larger role, there'll be more of a scouting report out for him. And it will be interesting to see how teams choose to attack him, how they choose to play him defensively. Can he knock down that three-point shot with consistency? I do think the rim protection is is really good right now for a very young age and the fouling. I think sometimes he just doesn't get the benefit of the doubt from the officials. He's kind of an easy target. They like to hold up 88. <laughs> so uh, he's been getting picked on, in my opinion, uh, just a little bit. But I've enjoyed watching him. And I think the other thing that's good is whenever Goga plays well and he's able to be uh, one of the guests at the interview sessions, it's good for us as well because he's got a great personality we've seen. I will say this. He's always almost always in a good mood. And I think there's exactly. something to be said for that. Even yep. when he's struggling, like he's in a good mood and, um, you know, he's just an upbeat and a positive guy. Um, maybe doesn't always have the awareness on days of the week, but, uh, <laughs> you know, overall, that's a, that's a small price. I, I think there's something to be said for having different types of personalities within your locker room and that, um, you know, relentless positivity and guy that keeps it light. Uh, Goga certainly fits that bill. Yep, Pat, this is a, an interesting week in that it's three road games and four nights. And, you know, you could say you could you could see this team if they're playing well, winning all three. And you could see it going probably the other direction because the Nets are really, really good. Maybe they're a little shorthanded. I don't think anybody will be feeling sorry for them. And at Detroit, not Atlanta has proven to be not an easy scenario over the years so i think this is a fun week to kind of see if the pacers can get back a little bit of that mojo we've been so used to seeing them not lose three consecutive games not have long losing streaks i'll admit i had forgotten they did lose six in a row last season and they were able to rebound from that so i'm not going to call wednesday's game against the nets must win or you've got to be two and one this week but i do think you've got to kind of get it going in, in the right direction pretty soon before the season gets too far towards the halfway point. Yeah, I absolutely think so too. And I mean, you know, the last week you've talked about it has been really challenging. Not only have you had some of the NBA's best teams on your schedule, um, but you've had a lot of them coming in playing some of their best ball. You look at the, around the NBA, how many teams haven't hit a tough patch, even in this early portion of the season, you're talking about what the four teams, the Los Angeles teams, Utah, um, and uh, and the Sixers, maybe. So everybody has hit this tough patch in the season. The Pacers are no different, save those four teams. Um, but it's can you keep that rough patch from being too problematic? To Mark Boyle's point earlier, five and six, not really a concern. It's probably going to happen. Um, can you keep it from building into 10 of 12? That's the key. And despite the fact that you've had a really tough schedule this next week, um, it's this upcoming stretch of games, as you said, is not easy. It's all on the road. Um, you know, Brooklyn is extremely talented. Atlanta, Atlanta has been up and down, but like, again, you catch them on an on night and they've been really tough and, uh, and Detroit is sandwiched in there, but that's the back to back, which is challenging too. And, and when you do these on the road, it's never easy. So I think it's probably a week where you say, this is uh, hopefully where, you know, you stop the skid a little bit. 
probably un- I hope we're talking about a three and zero stretch here. Probably unrealistic to get that, but if you do, great. Um, but nonetheless, can this be the time where you start to put the skids on a losing streak? I think that's what these up extra three games are about. These next three games are, you know, about getting back and finding your footing. And started the podcast talking about that home court advantage hasn't been there, and um, I mean that is is nothing besides a, a compliment to the fans and the arena. You know it just as well as I do. Um, we get to sit down low, which is where the loudest part of the arena is because everybody screams go downward. And, I mean, the the environment that you have in a close game in the fourth quarter at Bankers Life Fieldhouse, it's real. We hear other players that um, come into here talking about it, the way the building's set up, the stands are right on top of you, and you just don't have that. It's great having 1,500 fans in the building, but you just don't have that advantage. So on the other side, uh, you know, you'd like to see – you have a better home record and I think they will, but on the other side, um, you know, you don't have to face tough road environments either. So perhaps you can make some of that up with the fact that these three games might look a bit more daunting in a normal schedule than they do um, without other teams being able to have fans or only, you know, a handful of fans in their building. So disappointing to have this stretch that you have, especially considering it's been home games, but then you don't look, I think at these road trips, maybe quite, Uh, from the daunting lens that you might have beforehand. But I think where this team is next week, I think it'll be a little bit more significant than just where this team is every time we're recording a podcast because they haven't had the the big winning streaks. They started the year 3-0. and They've also avoided the big losing streaks. Every time they had two straight losses, the Pacers were able to follow that up with a win. Well, now for the first time this year, they've lost three straight. So how do they rebound from that? Where do things look when we're hopefully talking to Doug McDermott later next week? I agree with everything you said, Pat. I have a couple things that I wanted to end uh, this portion of the podcast with. And one was that it was great to see and hear that Karis LaVert has been with the team at the St. Vincent Center. Uh, we don't know yet about practicing and things like that, but Coach Bjorkren did say that he's been shooting at least and can have the ball in his hands, and And Miles Turner has acknowledged that he's got a smile on his face at all times, and this is good for Karis to just be around because he, as Miles said, doesn't really know his teammates that well, so he gets to know them a little bit, gets to know the coaches, gets to build a little bit of a bond, and then if and when he gets to the point where he can begin basketball activity, he will be ready to go. I did want to make make a time to say something, a note of support and maybe appreciation for someone that we all love and respect, and that, of course, is Bill Baino, the team announcing on Monday that he is resigning for personal and health reasons. And the statement I think many saw from Nate Bjorkren, and I thought Justin Holiday had a really – um, good thing to say about him when speaking with reporters on Tuesday. You, Everybody has sort of their own things that, you know, they have the basketball life that everyone sees and then the personal life that, that not everybody knows and sees. And I'll just say that I, I wish nothing but the best, and I hope that this is what Bill Baino needs, and that seemed to, to be that Justin Holiday said that, you know, he's happy for him, that he can step away and, and get some things in order. And I do know he's had some personal you know, tragedy and loss in his life. And so um, I, I'm just going to hope for the best and just acknowledge how much I enjoyed all of my interactions with Bill Baino over the years. People saw the one min, one question with Bill Baino to start the third quarter that we would have every third or fourth game. It was, it's such, it was such a fun dynamic doing those interviews because you had 
such different personalities with Dan Burke and Popeye Jones and Bill Baino, and each of them could give you a little bit different perspective. And that's one of the things I am missing as much as anything this season is not getting to know and interact and let, let those assistant coaches, let their personalities be seen by the fans. But, you know, Bill Baino, we always had little jabs for each other and they were all good natured. He sometimes would be critical of my, my sport coat. And I would come back with his shoes that didn't seem to always match, or maybe he had the same sport coat all three days of the road trip. But um, in general, just, you know, whether he was at Starbucks and I talked to him there and whenever I would see him, he would say, Jeremiah. (laughs) So I can, you know, I hope he maybe knows, I guess, right now. And and you saw so much on Twitter from some of the fans when this was announced. Basically, you know, unanimous. Just we love Bill Baino. We want the best for him. I don't think he's on Twitter. So I I just hope he can feel the love that uh, the Pacers fan base and the Pacers organization has for him. And and then you even think of the individual players that he's helped so much. I mean, the, the one that stands out is... DeMontis Sabonis because of all the time they have spent together in the offseason. Nobody does better at sort of individual skill development than Coach Baino. And he has a great way of interacting with NBA players in terms of, you know, speaking on their terms and to them in a way that they get it. And that's why he has so many, I think, you know, clients around the league. I mean, there are people who go to him in the summers, even though he's a Pacers assistant coach, he has a, had a little bit of an or, an agreement that he could continue to train players in the off seasons. And so um, I, I just, uh, I just hope everything can, can, can go well for him and he can have some peace and uh, you know, that this can be what he needs. I think that was perfectly said. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to add to it because I think you said it so well, but you know, one positive that we've seen over the last four or five years just as a society is we've gotten more awareness and more importance on mental health. And I think every time somebody is willing um, to make a move like this, it's extremely good for their own well-being. Um, but I think it helps a lot of other people, too. Um, when somebody who's an NBA coach uh, is willing to admit that they're going through struggles and um, that they're going to take some time to themselves. And think about it. I mean, you know, this guy's been a high-level coach for a long time, but to be able to get to the stage that he's on and to care as much as he does, that's not an easy decision. But it's a strong one, um, and it's one that I admire a lot because ultimately, you know, you have to take care of yourself first. And if you are not well, um, and it, then, you know, nothing else really matters. And so I have a ton of respect for what I'm sure was a very challenging decision, but I'm, I'm very glad that he's strong enough to be able to make that decision and that he's had the support around the building um, to do something like that. You're, you mentioned it. He's been through um, more than I think most people will have to go through. And, you know, when I think of him, I, I, the first thing I just think of is, as you touched on, is relationships, too, and, and how um, he conducts himself. And, um, you know, I think of after practice where he's running, um, you know, he's tossing the balls out to the guys playing around the horn or whether it's uh, when he's got that arm pad around his arm bar and, and working with the bigs. And I mean, the guy is just constantly, um, you know, in, in conversation mode. He's constantly joking. There's there's almost every single time they would play that around the world game. There's some sort of inside joke going on between he and whoever he's throwing the ball. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's 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 been fun to watch. 
lot. And those are, you know, kind of the interactions that, as you said, we miss getting to have in this COVID environment. Um, and, and with a new coaching staff, unfortunately, one of those challenges has been we haven't really gotten to meet any of them, save Zoom press conferences. And we're fortunate that we get to talk with Nate Bjorker and sometimes double digit times a week, but there's still him looking at a screen and you talking into a screen. And there's just um, something personal that you miss about um, doing a Zoom conference versus something one-on-one, even if you're not asking a question, even if um, you know, you're not conducting an interview. But Bill Baino was somebody that came from that other coaching staff and somebody that we got to know um, a little bit more. And mm-hmm. um, as you said, you had your halftime interviews with uh, him, and he was always very great when um, you would ask for his time with an interview. So, um, you know, I, I just think I, I respect his decision so much because I'm so glad that he um, is, is taking this time to make the right decision for him, but also because I think he's going to help other people that are faced, um, you know, with similar challenges. And I think every person that makes a decision like this helps themselves, helps other people, uh, and certainly wish the best for Bill Baino and um, hope to get to see him in person at some point in the not-too-distant future. Absolutely. We uh, we love you, Bill Baino, and we hope for the best. And uh, we hope for a good week, Pat, in Pacer land. Maybe we can have uh, you know, a little more to talk about next week. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with this podcast. You and I have started it, I think, for uh, about about five years ago. And um, look, I think I think our audience, for the most part, knows this now. If it's a tough week, you and I could be lucky to have these jobs for 40 years and we're never going to rip into guys. That's not our job. That's not what we do. That's not what we're here for. We're not daytime sports talk radio hosts. We don't have to come up with hot takes. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, a podcast like this can be more challenging than others. Um, and you know where we come from. But also, I, I think, you know, you hopefully know that we're going to, uh, to shoot it straight with you. And if the Pacers have lost a few in a row, um, you know, that you can come to us for your analysis as well. And we take a lot of importance on that side of things, too, that you, um, you know, can listen to what we have to say and, and can consider it and understand our perspective and where we're coming from. But um, ultimately, these podcasts are a lot more enjoyable when things are going well. And obviously, <laughs> as a fan, that's the case for you, too. So I think we're all hopeful um, that we do a couple of these a year where it's just been, you know, kind of a tough week on the floor. So we've gotten used to it. Um, but they're still not our favorite ones to do. So hopefully next week we'll have Doug McDermott, I think. Um, and hopefully they're talking about a rebound and, and maybe it's one of if not our best podcasts of the year. Yeah, we're I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, to be honest, I actually am really looking forward to the games this week. So tune in on the radio side of things. TV, we've got some later start times, I think, for all three of them. We'll be on the 730 both Wednesday and Thursday for pregame coverage and I believe seven o'clock on Saturday. And quick shout out, the Maddots and the G League are starting uh, their restart in their bubble in Orlando. Uh, check out the Fort Wayne Maddots website for more information there. You can uh, potentially catch up with Cassius, uh, what Cassius Stanley and some of the Maddots are doing. And um, I don't know all the details. There is going to be some sort of broadcast. I'm not sure if, if the, um, the width of where the broadcast is going to go to is going to hit down in Indianapolis. I'm still trying to figure some of those details out, but we'll certainly keep you up to date if nothing else. And uh, our friends over at Fort Wayne have also started a a podcast. If you subscribe to Pacer Sound, you got that podcast in your feed uh, a couple of weeks ago. And if you are interested, uh, make sure to give them a follow because it's exciting to see things after almost a year's time. I get kicked back into gear on the Mad Ant side and on the NBA G League side. That'll wrap it up for this week. Again, uh, beware. This podcast might not be out Wednesday next week, uh, but we hope to have Doug McDermott 
and we think it's going to be worth the wait. For JJ, I'm Pat. We'll talk to you next week on the Sideline Guys podcast.